0: Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Credo Catholic. Credo Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the Magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Credal Catholic. First of all, before I get into today's episode, I want to apologize for not releasing one since March 30th. It's now been two and a half weeks since I released an episode on this feed. And even when I released that one on March 30th, that was, of course, part two of the Benedict the 16th Jesus of Nazareth Holy Week series. Uh, I said we had some great programming coming up for Holy Week, and that indeed was my intent. So what happened, you ask? Well, the COVID-19 stuff... Uh, has really, I think, caused some disruptions to many, uh, the lives of many. Uh, I am included in that, although I will say the disruptions in my life are nowhere near as severe as the disruptions in the lives of so many of my my countrymen and uh, fellow, uh, fellow people around the world. So my prayers are with all of you who are affected by this, to one degree or another, some, of course, much worse than others. And I'm not pretending that this has totally unseated my routine or given me any sort of hardship uh, far, far be it from me to claim that. Uh, but this has certainly sort of caused some, some disruptions in minor ways to my daily rhythms and patterns of life. So I was not able to record anything for Holy Week. Uh, I, I've been assisting with some of the stuff at my parish in, in terms of mitigating COVID-19 circumstances and things like that. Um, so needless to say, uh, I've been busy, as I think we all have. I'm sorry that in a time when you probably have a lot of time around your house to listen to podcasts, I did not have one for you in the month of April <laughs> so far, uh, but hopefully this will whet your appetite a little bit. But I also want to say, this will actually be the last time I release a podcast for about a month. I'm going to go on an approximately month-long reprieve from releasing new episodes of Credo Catholic. Uh, I don't want you to think that's because the podcast is dying or going away or because I'm losing enthusiasm. The, uh, the, the reality is actually the opposite. I'm more excited than ever about Creedal Catholic. I really want to bring in fantastic content to all of you, the listeners. And I think the best way to do that is for me to just step back for a month, record a bunch of things, think about what kind of content I want to go after in the future, and go from there. And so I already have a lot of programming planned to give you give you some ideas of things I'll be releasing. I'll be talking with, um, with Casey Chalk, who's been on this podcast a couple times, about TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. That's the acronym often used to describe the core tenets of Reformed Theology, Uh, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, Perseverance of the Saints, so we're planning a a five-part series with Casey uh, on those topics. I'm also going to be talking with someone about being a consecrated virgin, what it means to be a consecrated virgin, her decision process for getting there, and her book that she wrote about about choosing a religious vocation. Uh, John Waters is going to be coming back on the show, I think, to talk about uh, Give Us Back the Bad Roads, his book. Um, and uh, I'm bringing on Kevin to talk about many other things as well so lots of great content planned Simone Riscala coming back on to talk about either St. Catherine of Siena or St. Edith Stein still trying to decide between the two of those great saints and of course you know whichever one we choose this time we'll, we'll do the other one in the future after that but uh, lots of exciting conversations coming up and there's lots to look forward to but I will not be releasing anything new until well into the month of May so I wanted to give you a heads up about that But uh, with all that said, I'll also mention that I have a couple of new projects in the works. One of them is I'm releasing yet another podcast. Now, if you're listening to this, you may already know that I have several other podcasts uh, that I do on a regular basis. Well, I'll be adding one more to that mix. So in addition to Vernacular Podcast and in addition to Breaking Pod, uh, I'll be releasing this new one. uh, Subject, uh, a little bit cloaked in secrecy. I'm not going to give you the... Full game now, but I will tell you it will be a literature-focused podcast, and the focus of its content will be an American writer. And that's all I'll say, except to also mention that listeners of Creedle Catholic may be especially interested in the subject matter. So uh, I'll just leave that teaser there, and you can uh, you can stay tuned for more updates on that. And I'm also launching a newsletter. Uh, this is, I think, the first time I've publicly announced that. It has not launched yet, uh, but it is coming and so I'm taking some time to uh, to think about uh, how exactly to roll that out, what exactly the format will be, topics, target audience, all those things. So I'm I'm doing a lot of things uh, in addition to my my day job, uh, and also in addition, of course, to my full time job of uh, being the the parent, the dad of three wonderfully energized youngsters. So. Um, I uh, please bear with me is what, is what I'm asking. Please be patient as I come out uh, with new creedal Catholic content for you. But it will come, it will just be May, mid-May or so before it does. So thank you for your patience. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for listening to today's episode. What I want to do today is talk about the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, and just a little bit about Divine Mercy Sunday. So some reflections on uh, what it means, uh, why the church has it, perhaps, uh, Jesus' um, communications with St. Faustina in, uh, and the, the devotion to divine mercy. So, but let's first back up to the resurrection. I thought this was appropriate during the Easter octave to talk about what the resurrection means. And I think this is really important because there are a lot of people today, within the Catholic Church but also without, who challenge the fact of the resurrection. So I want to set the stage for this by pointing your attention to a New York Times op-ed from last year, Easter last year, by Nick Kristoff. He's one of the regular op-ed columnists. He interviewed Serene Jones, who is president of Union Theological Seminary, and asked her some questions that have to do with Easter. And so first question in this op-ed, as I'm reading it to you now, Kristoff says, Happy Easter, Reverend Jones. To start, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? I have problems with that. Christoph here, of course, is embracing the modernist secular mindset that uh, denies miracles, that embraces scientism wholeheartedly. And he says, I have trouble believing in the literal flesh and blood resurrection. And uh, Serene Drone says, when you look in the Gospels, I'm quoting here, when you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. There's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. Okay, that's that's true. Uh, Those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves, but that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. For me, it's impossible to tell the story of Easter without also telling the story of the cross. The crucifixion is a first century lynching. It couldn't be more pertinent to the world today. Okay, so what is uh, Dr. Jones saying? She's saying that, uh, first of all, the Gospels are all over the place and there's no physical resurrection in Mark. That is true about Mark. It is not true that the Gospels are all over the place. The fact that there's no physical resurrection in Mark, and that stands out, means that the other three Gospels, namely Matthew, Luke, and John, all have stories of a physical resurrection. There is not disagreement among the Gospels on this point. So she glosses over that. But then she also pivots and says, no, for me, the focus of Easter is is the crucifixion, and it's a modern-day lynching. So she reduces the crucifixion to simply a, a sort of a, a analogy to race relations gone amok in our world today. Now, of course, it's important to talk about the horrors of lynching and the perils of racism and how it has contributed to horrific events like lynching, but the cross was not simply a modern-day lynching. The cross was an instance in which humanity crucified its god, creating what William Lane Craig has called a, a cosmic orphan. Humanity crucified its God. This was not simply a modern-day lynching, and, and a comparison between the two simply understates what happened at the crucifixion. But then this is interesting. So Christoph's next point or next question to Dr. Jones is, without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we are, that we are left with just the crucifixion? Right? I mean, that, that's exactly where I would go to Dr. Jones. So Dr. Jones, you say the crucifixion is the important part, if we don't even care about the resurrection or we just say we don't know if it actually happened, aren't we just left with the crucifixion? And here's Dr. Jones' answer, and I think this is this is pretty telling. Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. The pervasive idea of an abusive godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? Okay. If there's no resurrection, though, what triumph is she even talking about? There is no triumph of love in the midst of suffering without this real flesh and blood, bodily resurrection. And indeed, Christoph, uh, I mean, as often as I disagree with him, he asks good questions here. <laughs> Listen to this. Two questions down. Isn't a Christianity, this is what he asks Dr. Jones, isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is about love, that's less religion, more philosophy. Okay, I don't know what he's saying with that, that last sentence. Less religion, more philosophy. That doesn't make any sense. But his first question there, his first sentence is important. Isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? All right, this is Dr. Jones's answer. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, what? That seems to, be, seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in a tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No, faith is stronger than that. And uh, Dr. Jones sort of gives away the game here. I mean, the next question is, uh, Christoph says, what about the miracles of the New Testament, say the virgin birth? Dr. Jones says, I find the virgin birth a bizarre claim. (laughs) Okay, all right. Well, let's just back up a second to her answer about this physical resurrection. She says, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. But what if Dr. Jones... What if this love didn't actually conquer death? What in the world? How do you get the message that love is stronger than death if love doesn't actually conquer death? That doesn't make any sense at all whatsoever. And then she says that's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. Okay, is anybody claiming that? Is anybody's claim on which they rest their entire existence that Jesus was in the tomb and that three days later he wasn't there? that there was an empty tomb. I mean, no, Christianity is not built on the legend of an empty tomb. Christianity is built on the historical fact or let's just say let's just say the faith if you're a skeptic of this. Christianity is built on the faith that Jesus Christ crucified, died and was buried and 3 days later there was an empty tomb, but not just an empty tomb, rather that Jesus rose from the dead, was alive in a real flesh and blood sense, ate with the disciples, fellowship with the disciples, taught with the disciples, and then ascended to his father in heaven. That is exactly why we can say that love is stronger than death. And so Christoph is absolutely right. A Christianity without a resurrection is far less powerful. What does it mean without a resurrection? It means essentially nothing at all. I think you can basically boil it down to the same, the golden rule of Confucius, right? That Jesus of Nazareth also taught. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Right? That's the, if that's all we have, and we don't have a Jesus who has risen from the grave and conquered death, then Christianity is indeed watered down. And it's absolutely ridiculous that, that uh, Dr. Jones pretends that's not the case. So, I mentioned all of this as a prelude to talk about why it's important that we recognize and that we cling and hold fast to the resurrection, but when I say cling and hold fast to, I don't mean that we cling and hold fast to this despite all evidence to the contrary. In fact, far from it, we cling and hold fast to this because of the evidence, because the evidence is in our favor. There are a number of books I could recommend to you on this topic, uh, Lee Strobel's Case for Christ, um, Brant Petre's Case for Jesus, uh, William Lane Craig's The Sun Rises, many books written on this. Um, but there are a few stubborn facts that I think we need to talk about in the context of this resurrection and why the resurrection is something that we hold to as a historical fact, not just a a make-believe fairy story, not a mere legend. On this legend piece, the first thing I'll say, some people look at the Bible and say, the Bible is a collection of legends. And it is true that there are th- there is mythic language in some parts of the Bible. For example, in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was was without form and void, et cetera, et cetera. That is mythic language. Now, a myth doesn't necessarily mean not true, right? This isn't this isn't a myth in the same category as, you know, myths of Pegasus, the flying horse. Myth, rather, uh, is a meta-narrative, a grand narrative that uses cosmic language and often figurative language to convey truths about our existence. All right. Or to convey realities about our existence. So the book of Genesis, uh, the first several chapters of it, are myths in that sense. Uh, was there a literal garden, for example? Well, uh, there could have been. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is clear, though, that, that those first few chapters of Genesis use figurative language to discuss a real primeval event, right? That this, this something happened, right? That God did indeed create man and woman. Now, did God create uh, man and woman ex nihilo just out of nothing? All of a sudden, you know, there was nothing. And then all of a sudden there was a man, uh, you know, fully formed, et cetera. Or did God choose to use processes of evolution as his creative design uh, to yield man and woman? Uh, We don't know, right? Uh, And it is actually plausible to hold both positions. But what we can say, what the language, the mythical language of Genesis is telling us and what is truly real about our existence is that, Man and woman is the crowning of God's creation, that God does intend to be in special friendship with man and woman, that he has a special plan for humanity. All of this is true. And also, uh, after that, that man and woman, corrupted by pride, the primeval sin, uh, fall, introduce sin and disorder into the creation of God, that God created holy good. Okay, all of that is factual information that is conveyed to us using mythical language in Genesis. Pivot now to the gospel accounts of the resurrection, what do you find? Nothing at all like that whatsoever. In fact, in all of the Gospels, perhaps with the exception of the very opening sentences of the Gospel of John, you don't find mythic language. Now, when I say the possible exception, if you look at the first couple of verses of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was in the, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's that's kind of mythic language, but it quickly pivots from there to a man named John, John the Baptist, who's preparing a way in, in, the, in the desert, et cetera. Okay, so the Gospels don't use mythic language, except for that one exception in the Gospel of John. What then do we have? We have stories of real people who have real names, who lived in real times. We have real titles assigned to them. We hear about men like Herod. We hear Caiaphas, the high priest. We hear about Joseph of Arimathea. We hear about Nicodemus. We hear about all of the apostles who are named. We hear about Jairus, et cetera. These men and women have names because they're real flesh and blood people. Uh, and, you know, you might say that Adam and Eve had names, and, and that is true. Of course, the, the uh, etymology, the Hebrew etymology of those names does tend to indicate that they are sort of mythical uh, titles to describe those, those figures. Rather, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, these names are, are, you know, actual flesh and blood names of people that be walking around, like Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, you know, from the region of Magdala, Joseph of Arimathea, from Arimathea, right? So there are identifiers that associate people in these accounts with real flesh and blood people who lived and died just like we do. So that's the first thing, right? Language of myth is not in these Gospel sources at all. And, uh, you know, Dr. Jones in this interview with Christoph, wants to point fingers at these Christians who, what, what did she say, like stubbornly hold to the resurrection or something like that. I mean, just totally absurd language to talk about this. But let's talk about it, right? We, we need to talk about why we hold to the resurrection, and we need to talk about whether or not it is reasonable to hold fast to the resurrection. And in my mind, in the views of, of many others, uh, this, these are not all original thoughts. In fact, I borrow a lot of them from uh, Brant Petrie and William Lane Craig. But there are four really stubborn facts that support the idea that jesus rose from the dead or at the very least that he was buried in accordance with what the gospels say okay so let's start with the first of those that he was buried jesus's burial this is attested to by multiple independent sources right uh not just in the bible but also the bible and when we talk about independent sources i mean the gospels do have to count as historical sources even if uh you know one or two of them is derived from the other, they still have to stand as historical sources and we have to evaluate them as we evaluate other historical sources. So if we're gonna talk about the writings of Josephus, there's no reason we can't also talk about the writings of Matthew or of Mark or of Luke or of John, et cetera, right? So this is attested to by multiple sources. Someone like Joseph of Arimathea, like I talked about previously, the Joseph of the town of Arimathea, right? That is an unlikely invention for a legend, tying the legend to some real person. There's no other burial story that exists about the burial of Jesus. The only story that we have, again, appearing in multiple sources, is that he was buried in, in a tomb, uh, and that a giant stone was rolled in front of the entrance of that tomb. What else do we know about the tomb? We know that that type of construction of tomb would be consistent with what was seen in that era. It's one of three general types of tombs, uh, and you know, bur- burying someone in a cave and rolling a stove and so- stone in front of that is uh, is a pretty appropriate and consistent, historically, Uh, way to describe what happened here. On top of that, we also know in Jewish culture that the lives of Jewish or the tombs of Jewish holy men would be venerated and would be known. So there's reason to think that this legend, uh, this fact would survive. Uh, And if there's no evidence to the contrary, no other historical accounts that are plausible about where Jesus was buried, where he died, then we'd have to take at face value these ones that tell us where he was buried and, and how he was buried. The second fact is the empty tomb. So on the third day, right, this is when we read the story of the empty tomb, uh, depending on the, the gospel account that you read. I mean, the, the uh, John, I think, has Mary Magdalene finding an empty tomb, running and telling the disciples and Peter and John running to the tomb. John runs a little faster than Peter, but waits for him to enter because Peter has headship over the disciples. Peter enters the tomb. And yes, indeed, the tomb is empty. So this empty tomb is attested to by multiple independent sources as well. But think about this. If you were a Jewish man or woman who's writing a story that you want people to believe, right? This is a giant conspiracy. You want people to believe that the tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead. You would tell this story, but the first person who encounters the tomb would almost certainly not be a woman. Why is that? Because legally, in the context of the Jewish culture legally a woman's testimony counted for half of a man's if you wanted to have he said she said in court you'd have to have two women against one man because uh you know obviously it is we recognize this as a a gross inequality now but at the time the testimony testimony of a woman simply did not hold the weight of a man legally speaking so if you're writing a story about how the tomb was empty why in the world would you make the first witness to this a woman namely mary magdalene uh, you simply wouldn't. Uh, you wouldn't do that because it would not be a believable story. At least not as believable as it would be if it was a man who first saw this and then bore witness to it. But no, it's Mary Magdalene who sees the empty tomb, goes and tells the apostles, and it's that reason for that reason that she's called the apostle to the apostles. That's a that's an implausible thing, implausible thing for a a uh, a person who is contriving the story to come up with. Here's another thing: the earliest propaganda, Jewish propaganda against Christians, right against the Christian narrative. Jewish uh, authors who are trying to discredit the Christians, they don't say the tomb wasn't empty. They actually assume an empty tomb. They attack the Christian premises on other grounds, you know, grounds for example, perhaps like blasphemy. But they don't say that there's not an empty tomb. They actually assume an empty tomb, and this is within decades of of uh, Jesus's resurrection. So this suggests to us that these early jews who had an interest in discrediting the christians couldn't even discredit them on the empty tomb because that was a historically verified fact in relatively recent memory that the tomb was indeed empty um in addition i've already mentioned that the lives or the tombs of holy men would be venerated there's no record anywhere of the tomb of jesus ever being venerated why because he wasn't there the tomb was empty Now, of course, the empty tomb does not imply a resurrection. In fact, in that interview that I just read between Nick Kristoff and Dr. Serene Jones, she said the reality is Jesus died and then three days later the tomb was empty. Okay, and that's the miracle of Easter. Okay, that's a ridiculous miracle. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. if, if there's an empty tomb, all it means is the body isn't there, right? In fact, what Mary thinks, Mary Magdalene, when she goes into the tomb in the Gospel of John is, they have taken my Lord away. Her first thought is not, the resurrection has happened, my Lord is alive. Her first thought is, where have they taken him? And she wants to find out where the body of the Lord is so that she can anoint the body with myrrh and other other spices. Okay, so the empty tomb is not conclusive of the resurrection. However, one thing that's, of course, necessary to say is that if the resurrection did happen, if it was a flesh and blood resurrection, the tomb would need to be empty, right? We can't have Jesus' body simultaneously in the tomb rotting and also alive and walking among us, right? Those are mutually exclusive possibilities. However, an empty tomb does not necessarily mean a risen Jesus. This is, this is, in fact, I think where Dr. Jones' faith ends based on what she was saying to, to Nick Kristoff. Uh, you know, her faith is in an empty tomb. She doesn't even contest that, right? That the, the tomb was indeed empty, but that doesn't mean Jesus died and, and rose again. So now let's talk about this resurrection. The post-mortem appearances. Okay, okay. So in 1 Corinthians 15 Paul goes on to list a bunch of people uh, that who saw this, right He first appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the 12, uh, then he appeared to me and 500 other people. <clears throat> now Paul wouldn't say 500 other people, I don't think um, if those weren't if that wasn't something that was empirically verifiable right and of course Paul is writing a few decades uh, after the these appearances. So a lot of those 500 people would still be alive. This would be something that could be discredited or verified by a reader of a contemporaneous reader of St. Paul's epistles at the time that he's writing, and he still decides to say, no, he appeared to all these people. So that's important. I mean, also the other apostles are alive as well. But if you're buying this conspiracy theory, right, that this is just a, ma- a massively contrived plot by the disciples to con the world into believing in a false messiah, etc., you could say, okay, all the apostles are in on the plot. It'd be a lot harder to say 500 people are in on the plot, and Paul is appealing to these 500 people, and they're all in on it, and they're all going to say that they saw, they saw Jesus. No, I think far to the contrary. Paul knows how miraculous this bodily resurrection really is, and he's, he's giving evidence to anybody who would object and would contradict him. He's giving evidence to say, no, he appeared to all of these people, including five, almost 500 between his resurrection and his ascension, uh, and they all, they all saw him in real, true ways. Uh, so that's, I think, really, really uh, important to notice. Now, here's another thing. On Dr. Jones' point, right, about the, the empty tomb and the real miracle of love, conquering death, et cetera, there is no, I, I can't stress this enough, there is no conquering of death unless Jesus actually rises again, right? If the story is Jesus dies, and then three days later his followers come and steal his body and bury him somewhere else and the tomb is empty, Where in the world is love conquering death there? It's not. The fact is love only conquers death in this narrative if the love of Jesus Christ conquers death and overpowers it and he rises from the grave. Now what you could say perhaps is that he could have a spiritual resurrection, right? That he could rise from the grave in a spiritual sense. He could ascend directly to the Father. He could maybe appear to the disciples in a series of mystical visions, etc. And that indeed is one of the proposals for sort of reconciling these accounts that we have in the Gospels. But cutting against that account significantly is the fact that every single resurrection appearance in the Gospels is Jesus in undeniably bodily form. For example... Thomas, this is Thomas's main concern, right? And this is one of the reasons I love, I love Thomas so much. He's such a, he's such a, a, practical, realistic thinker. And yet he comes to faith through this. He says, unless I put my hands, uh, in my hands in his side and the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe. So what does he do? He does exactly that. And then he falls on his face and says, my Lord and my God, because he is now convinced this is a real true flesh and blood resurrection. Similarly, uh, Jesus you know, appearing on the side of the lake with the disciples says that he's hungry. Um, yeah, they make him some fish to eat because he wants to eat. Again, consuming food shows that he is uh, there in real bodily form. Also, breaking bread with them. When the disciples don't recognize him on the road to Emmaus, he breaks bread with them, and then he, he is made known to them in the breaking of bread. We would now call this the Eucharist. Uh, Just as Jesus is made known to us in every Mass through the breaking of bread, the Eucharist. Um, So every appearance of Jesus in his bodily resurrected form underscores the bodily resurrection, not just a mystical experience. I think I talked about this last episode, actually. But Benedict XVI's book, Jesus of Nazareth, Holy Week, talks about this as well. That it's a bodily resurrection, not a mystical vision. Because some people might say, these disciples are hallucinating or they're having some sort of mystical vision. But a mystical vision is different, isn't it? Because in a mystical vision, the person is actually transported sort of outside of themselves and they have some vision of a broader or a bigger or a truer reality. That's what a mystical vision is like. Is about. A, a bodily resurrection of the incarnate son of God, however, is one in which our reality is intruded upon by that reality, right? So rather than sort of our reality opening up and, and being sort of transported, if temporarily, to another reality. It's about a, a larger reality coming in and penetrating our own. It's clear that that's what we're talking about, that sort of um, incursion into our world by God himself. Uh, this is the bodily resurrection, not just a mystical experience. And now we come to the fourth stubborn fact about this, and that is very simple, perhaps uh, self-explanatory, but it might be something that you haven't thought about a whole lot, and that's that simply the disciples believed it so these men and women i'm using disciples now kind of you know lowercase d uh, broader sense the people who followed jesus these men and women were truly convinced that their lord had risen from the dead in a bodily sense this is clear from the gospels this is clear from the epistles of paul especially um and this belief started the movement that changed the entire world now, if you're going to say this is a conspiracy, right, that there were you know 12 close-knit followers of Jesus, uh, one of them betrayed him, but the other 11 conspired to continue on and pretend that he was actually the true Messiah. Okay, that's all well and good. You can have your little conspiracy theory, but you're still going to have to tell me the motivation for that conspiracy. Because every single one of those followers, including Paul, except for John, who died in exile on an island all by himself, which sounds, you know, unpleasant. Every single one of them died a martyr's death. Okay? Every other conspiracy in history that has been as successful as the as conspiracy theorists in this instance say that Christianity is, every other conspiracy has led to one of three things for the con men. <laughs> Wealth, fame, or power, right? Those are the main motivations for, you know, in some sense or, or form, those are the three motivations for running a massive conspiracy, wealth, fame, or power. What happened to these men, right? They were certainly not wealthy. They were the poorest of the poor. Uh, they were certainly not powerful. In fact, uh, they were trodden down by secular governments everywhere uh, in all cases, or almost all cases, crucified by secular governments. That is certainly not what you'd call power. Now, you might say they're famous because so many people around the world know, for example, who St. Paul is. And that is true. But how many people knew while he was alive, right? This is not a man who saw fame while he was alive. Uh, and I have yet to hear about a conspiracy, uh, you know, that has, that has given motivation to the founder of the conspiracy or the propagator of the conspiracy only because of the promise of posthumous fame. It's not exactly how conspiracies work. So if you're going to advance this conspiracy theory, you need to convince me that, that uh, all 11 and then later Paul pe- uh, apostles uh, were convinced of the truth or, or, or so conspired together to say, we're not going to be wealthy. Uh, we're not going to be powerful. We're all going to die the violent death of a martyr. But maybe, just maybe, if we're successful, hundreds of years hence, people will talk about us and they'll call us saints, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, that's not plausible at all to me. Uh and hopefully not to you as well. Um, and the disciples were truly dying what they believe, for what they believed in. They might say, I'm only saying that because of the, uh, the Bible. Well, the Bible actually doesn't have the stories of too many martyrs' deaths. Most of our uh, information comes from external sources and not even exclusively Christian sources. So, for example, the Roman sources, um, the historian Agaius Suetonius and Juvenal, confirm just within decades of Jesus' death that his disciples are already dying for what he believed. Uh, Pliny the Younger, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, there's a few more secular Roman historians who are saying the same thing, that these Christians, there's something different about them because these Christians are dying for what they believe. Now again, these conspiracy theorists are gonna have to convince me that all of these early Christians uh, were, were so hell-bent on convincing people of the truth of this, despite their own knowledge of its falsehood, that they would die a violent, gruesome, horrific, martyr's death in order to convince people that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. Okay. And then the final thing to know, and this is this is from the gospel accounts themselves, but the disciples' posture changes here, right? Why would you, you know, if, if you were advancing this conspiracy, this would be your, your line from day one, right? As soon as Jesus is arrested and handed over to Caiaphas and sentenced to death, the disciples would start saying, he's going to rise from the dead, just you watch. He's going to be in the ground for three days, and then he'll rise again. The tomb will be empty. You know, We'll have really stolen it away, etc. But the tomb will be empty and we'll say that he rose from the dead and then we'll go on to found the church and we'll cover the world, etc. We'll set the world afire. Uh, that's not what happens though. The disciples are actually terrified. Uh, they're cowering in the upper room for fear of the Jews when Jesus appears to them. Peter, of course, denies Jesus publicly three times because they themselves are crestfallen that the Lord has died. Again, go back to Thomas. Why does he refuse to believe? Uh, because he had placed so much faith in Jesus. He was willing to die for Jesus earlier in the gospel account. Uh, and now Jesus has, has, you know, in his view, abandoned him and is gone forever. So Thomas says, I'm not going to get snookered again, right? I'm not going to believe that Jesus has died from the, uh, has risen from the dead unless I am able to put my hands in his feet and, and in his sides. But then he does, right? And just like the disciples on the road to Emmaus who recognize Jesus in the breaking of bread, all of a sudden they see him. They recognize and they perceive him in real bodily form. And that drives a change in their interior posture towards him. So they go from being hopeless and forlorn and despairing to saying, quite literally, Alleluia, Christ is risen, like we do in the Easter Octave. That, again, is evidence, I think, of the resurrection of Jesus. And any argument to the contrary has to contend with those four stubborn facts. Jesus was indeed buried, as the Gospels describe there was indeed an empty tomb, as even Dr. Jones in that New York Times interview acknowledges. There were indeed post-mortem appearances, and the disciples truly did believe, so much so that they, almost all in the early days, gave their lives for this Jesus who rose again. Those are some stubborn facts. And anybody who says that the resurrection was not bodily needs to contend with those. And anybody further, like Dr. Jones, who criticizes Christians for stubbornly obsessing over the resurrection, needs to seriously examine themselves and why they think that a Christianity that does not proclaim the resurrection in a real flesh and blood sense is not just totally devoid and sterilized and meaningless. Because it is. If we don't have a God who rose from the dead and conquered the grave then what do we have? If our God is not strong enough to do that, then he's not very strong at all. Okay, so with that commentary given for the resurrection, let me just briefly talk about Divine Mercy Sunday because that's tomorrow. Uh, It's a very important Sunday in the church. St. John Paul II, of course, loved this devotion, really advanced devotion to the Divine Mercy. Uh, I personally know a priest who has a very strong devotion to Divine Mercy and now, one thing I'll say is that you don't have to have a really strong devotion to divine mercy. Um, the church has approved this devotion. Uh, the church has, in many instances, advanced um, advanced the devotion and encouraged people to have this devotion. But, but you don't have to have the devotion to divine mercy. <clears throat> um, in fact, I mean, I would say that I don't have a particularly strong devotion to divine mercy, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, my wife has a pretty strong devotion to divine mercy. I know a priest who has a very strong devotion to divine mercy, but it's okay if if you don't. I do, however, think it's important to recognize what this divine mercy devotion is all about. And in a future podcast, I actually hope to bring on my priest friend to talk about it because it is it is very powerful. The core idea here is that Jesus wants to save us. No matter how much bad we've done, no matter how many evil things we constantly are on a daily basis, God wants us. God loves us. Jesus Christ, as he hangs on the cross, says, I thirst. And his thirst is for souls. His thirst is to save souls and sanctify us. Uh, and so I think this is a really important um, feast in the calendar of the church, and especially after Easter, right? I mean, it's, it's easy to come down from the Easter octave and think Easter's over. We, we celebrated Easter for eight days. We had eight straight solemnities, et cetera, the highest feast of the church year. But the beautiful thing about the Divine Mercy Sunday is that, right on the tail end of that Easter octave, we get this wonderful reminder of the complete, complete mercy of Jesus. All right, so I want to read a few excerpts from the uh, the diary of Saint Faustina. Saint Faustina, of course, was the uh, wonderful little Polish nun uh, whose revelations from Jesus contributed to her Divine Mercy diary. Uh, and eventually to the church's whole divine mercy devotion, and Jesus asked her to establish a, a feast of divine mercy on the Sunday after Easter. That's why we have the feast now, etc. Um, and and uh, it's it's just a wonderful it's a wonderful devotion. It's a wonderful reminder of how merciful our God is. Let me read a couple excerpts here, page six hundred ninety nine. My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the feast of mercy may be a refuge and shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. On that day, the very depths of my tender mercy are open. I pour out a whole ocean of graces upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. All right. Jesus longs for our mercy. Again, page 1695. And yes, that's not a typo. This is a very long diary. Be always merciful as I am merciful. Love everyone out of love for me, even your greatest enemy, so that my mercy may be fully reflected in your heart. All right, page 367. My heart overflows with great mercy for souls and especially for poor sinners. If only they could understand that I am the best of fathers to them and that it is for them that the blood and water flowed from my heart as from a fount overflowing with mercy. For them, I dwell in the tabernacle as king of mercy. And page 723. I perform works of mercy in every soul. The greater the sinner, the greater the right he has to my mercy. My mercy is confirmed in every work of my hands. He who trusts in my mercy will not perish, for all his affairs are mine, and his enemies will be shattered at the base of my footstool. And the final quote I'll read from page 1146. Let the greatest sinners place their trust in my mercy. They have the right before others to trust in the abyss of my mercy. My daughter, write about my mercy towards tormented souls. Souls that make an appeal to my mercy delight me. To such souls I grant even more graces than they ask. I cannot punish even the greatest sinner if he makes an appeal to my compassion, but on the contrary, I justify him in my unfathomable and inscrutable mercy. Right, before I come as a just judge, I first open wide the door of my mercy. He who refuses to pass through the door of my mercy must pass through the door of my justice. Actually, sorry, I lied. One more quote, 1,396. Oh, if sinners knew my mercy, they would not perish in such great numbers. Tell sinful souls not to be afraid to approach me speak to them of my great mercy. And I'll end there because I think that's a great exhortation for us all. Let us speak to everyone about the great mercy of God. I think people stay away from the church because they're often afraid of what obedience to the church will entail. And indeed, sometimes it can be hard. It can be hard to follow the moral demands and commands of the church. But what they don't recognize is that being in the church also means having recourse to this incredible, awesome, mercy of God that is enough to wipe away every sin of the whole world and having recourse to that is the greatest of all blessings Uh, it is love in its totality and I think on Divine Mercy Sunday we have the occasion to be rejuvenated and go tell our neighbors and friends about the Divine Mercy of God that is indeed after all the whole lesson of Divine Mercy Sunday that's the whole reason that Jesus wanted Saint Faustina to do it he thirsts for souls and he wants us the church to bring him souls to to bring him souls uh, to the foot of the cross uh, and allow him to envelop them in his great love and mercy. So as we wrap up this Easter octave let's go into divine mercy sunday and think about that. And then think about how as we move beyond, you know, into the greater Easter season and then to pentecost and beyond ascension and then pentecost and beyond, how we will tell other people about this great love of Jesus Christ and how we will bring people into the church so that they too can encounter for themselves the all inspiring mercy of this Savior who took flesh and blood for us, was crucified, died, and rose again, not in a spiritual sense alone, but in a real flesh and blood, bodily sense, with holes in his hands and a pierced side so that we could come to him forever. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of Credal Catholic. Please send me a note. Zach ZAC at creedal Let me know what I missed. Let me know what I should have covered. Let me know what you liked. Didn't like all of that. I will incorporate all of that feedback. I always love to hear from listeners as well. So it'd be great if you could send me a note, please do. Uh, and as I mentioned, hiatus for about a month from releasing new episodes. This feed will not die. It'll just be quiet for about a month. And then I'll have a bunch of new material Uh, to post on there. So stay tuned for that. Do not unsubscribe. Just stay there. And in mid-May or so, you'll see new episodes start coming in. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more projects coming out from the uh, Vernacular Podcast Network. And until then, God bless you.